So what I'm going to basically do is it's fairly covering a wide range. Often philosophy talks are sometimes very narrow, and this one's going to be kind of wide-ranging. So you can kind of see to some extent what's you know in the the book, and much of what I'm covering therefore will be very brief. And uh, perhaps uh, you're interested, you know, get, uh, get the flyer. I guess this one you order from the publisher. They have it Blackwell's on the street, and of course, there's the ubiquitous Amazon.com. Uh, all right, <clears throat> let's start. Uh, 2014 has been a very bad year for human rights. Among the most publicized abuses, we have ISIS, ISIL, and the beheading of Americans and Britons. Syria and Assad's long-running massacre of his own citizens. Egypt, where female genital mutilation has reached a staggering 91% of women over 13. Europe, where xenophobic attitudes about black and brown immigration is bringing a sharp rise in hate crimes. The Democratic Republic of Congo, where the informal war of the 1990s still generates hundreds of war rapes each year. India, where reported rapes are at an all-time high. The Philippines, where reported abduction of women for sex trafficking is at an all-time high. In Chile, a country of 17 million people, 12 million do not have actual access to effective health care because of medical illiteracy. This is common in several other countries in South America as well. The Russian Federation, which seeks to take over the sovereign country of Ukraine. The People's Republic of China, which seeks to control uh, social media and continue to arrest people based upon uh, their inappropriate political views. The United States, where an unarmed teenage African-American is killed by policemen because the boy was a smart aleck. Much of the world who continue to persecute the LGBT community even unto death. So. How should I begin to presume what I presume? I should have been a pair of ragged claws scuttling across the floors of silent seas. First, first justification of human rights, the legal justification. So, many proponents, uh, very prominent is Charles Bites. Uh, he has an you know, effective book that was written about four years ago. Uh, just. Two weeks ago, I was on a panel with Eric Posner, son of Richard Posner, and he's got another legalistic uh, defense. The legalistic uh, advocates put the beginning of human rights consciousness at the end of the Second uh, World War in reaction to Hitler and the United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights. For them, it all begins there because that's the first document that, that is uh, 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 aspiring to talk to all people. Because they're document-oriented, understand, they're, they're lawyers. <clears throat> this is probably the people I've come into contact, both in the academy and outside the academy, in my work at the Center for American Progress, uh, w in which we're dealing with actual people in Congress and, and, and uh, ambassadors and so forth. This seems to be, uh, in my experience, the most popular view, this legalistic defense of human rights. I'm going to tell you why it's wrong later, but I, I think it's the most popular. So what's it based upon? The, it's based upon a notion of agreement. So I'm going to uh, show you. This is not sign language. This is, I'm going to say, small c, right, for consent, big C, okay? Small c, big c, okay? 
So uh, the contractarianism is based on small c. Now consent is important in the law by indicating uh, permission. We see this in the medical field in informed consent. This is an act between A, the patient, and B, the physician. Particular entities, those, think of A and B as names, not as variables. A gives B permission to form a hip replacement. This particular interaction is not generalized. It is not consent. Now, I uh, uh, mentioned it to Julian over lunch that I worked on the uh, ethics manual for the Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons in the United States. One of the things we had a big discussion about was uh, the ethical uh, amount of time that physicians should spend on uh, talking to their patients about the pros and cons of the procedure and, and what they benefit and, and, and the dangers. And uh, in orthopedic surgery, at least at the time when we were doing this manual, it was about 90% mm, male, 10% female in the United States. Females generally worked on hands. Uh, the males did the, uh, the hips, uh, the knees, uh, the back. And uh, those are pretty substantial things, back surgery, uh, hip replacement, and, and so forth. And, and these were primarily um, the male orthopedic surgeons. And I asked them how long they, they took. And they were in the room with others, so that it wasn't just me and them one-on-one. -on -one. And the average was about five minutes. Uh, five minutes for major surgery that can change your life. So then I asked the, uh, the women orthopedic surgeons who worked on hands, important but not as you know, life-changing, and their average was about 35 minutes. Uh, it, it, they, and there was a little fracas actually about this because the, the female orthopedic surgeons were kind of trying to shame the males, but unfortunately the males in that room, there was about 14 of them at that particular instance I'm remembering, had no shame. They thought five minutes was just fine you know, got to get to the next patient and get the next bill submitted. Okay, uh, so that's, a, that's that sense of, uh, uh, and, and by the way, some of the, that five minutes was when someone was on a table under uh, some partial anesthesia. So, uh, I, I'm going to suggest that uh, the problem with thinking uh, about this uh, small sense of C consent is that it's procedural. It's a permission. It's not consent, which has a substantive uh, power to it. It does not ground law. Uh, for those of you who are really interested in consent in the law, here's, here's a preview. If you want to go up north to uh, Durham Castle, I deliver a lecture on this topic on 16 October next year. So you can come up, if you like this one, come up, have a uh, chance to see Durham Castle. Needless to say, I do not fundamentally, fundamentally construe the free, unfettered acts in a consensual uh, community worldview as being sufficient. As per the slave trade in North America and elsewhere, the majority population decides who should be in the consensual act. All right, come on in. Plenty of room. Come right in. Plenty of chairs. And we can see some of the, the basic problems by one of the great uh, contractarians of the 20th century, John Rawls. Uh, John Rawls, you know, has uh, two um, major problems in his justification that have been pointed out by many. First, the odd characterization of agents. Whenever you take a thought experiment and, and say, let's pretend that, that people don't know who they are, how old they are, uh, if they're smart or dumb, 
uh, if uh, their stage of life and, and so forth, you create an artificial uh, 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 position in a possible world, right? P call it some possible world A, it's not this world. And then you, you generate effects and you say, look what happens in, in possible world A when the veil of ignorance is and, and applies. They will generate this. Then we just apply back here, which, in which nobody could possibly make you ignorant of all those things. And I call that the thought experiment fallacy. I've actually written about that. We have to be very careful with thought experiments to, to say that they can exist in their own world, but when you bring them back, unless the conditions, boundary conditions in some way can be construed here, then it's, uh, it's a logical fallacy. Secondly, uh, his con concept of what rationality. He uses this Minimax uh, rationality model uh, based on you know, computer games, very popular also in economics, but you know, you're telling me what counts as rational and you're saying people are rational, you're begging your question and you, and you have your outcome right there. So the kind of consent that, and, and I attack him because he's the most honored among the contractarians, uh, at least in uh, the United States. So uh, I, I, I think contractarianism fails. It fails in other respects as well. Uh, it relies upon the normative blessing of consent. For those who are latecomers, this means small c, and that means big C. Uh, they, uh, and that they think that this kind of consent yields that kind of consent. It sounds uh, uh, certainly attractive, but uh, I attack this idea because uh, we can all agree at the micro level to all sorts of things, such as I will pay you 1,000 pounds to kill my academic rival. He's not in the room, is he? Okay, oh, good. Uh, that, does, uh, that does not make it correct. There is a different dynamic in persuasion than you need for something that is substantive. We can't really move from the C to the C. Here we have to trot out moral realism and moral anti-realism, uh, that sort of distinction. In the uh, UK, US, and Canada, maybe, I don't think in Australia, but uh, uh, they don't discuss this so much. Uh, it is more discussed in Australia, so that they're, they're on top there. Uh, but uh, it's kind of uh, assumed that everyone is anti-realist, and, and therefore, uh, as anti-realists, as there can be no real moral values, they're all conventional, and that would uh, include human rights, then, then contractarianism sounds very attractive because it just, uh, it just happens. You can just agree on, on various uh, 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 criteria. So in contradistinction, because of my realist and uh, orientation and because of these, these arguments, in my book, I'm, I, in more detail and length, obviously, uh, will reject the contractarian uh, approach. Uh, but you know you can't really prove. I mean, if, if someone were to say in a question to me, "Well, in uh, uh, three minutes or less, answer, please uh, disprove anti-realism, a moral anti-realism," uh, you can't you can't do it to everyone's satisfaction. And for those of you who are philosophers, I assume many of you are, uh, that's what also makes philosophy very attractive. You know, engineering friends of mine say, "You know, we have an engineering problem, we solve it." But you guys are talking both Eastern and Western traditions, what they talked about in Plato's time or Confucius' time. Boy, you guys uh, really are, are, are slack. Well, uh, the, the, the problem is, you see, is that we have these fundamental assumptions, uh, such as moral realism and anti-realism, that you can't prove. They, seem, they can seem plausible to you, and then you match it against your life experience or personal worldview, which I'll talk about in a moment, and, and you decide that it's, it's, it's grounds for your belief. Okay, uh, so 
since I'm rejecting uh, uh, contractarianism, what's the second uh, major approach for uh, uh, human rights would be interest theory. Uh, interest theory. So, um, as I mentioned with, a, with the legal justification, that they pretty much start, they believe that human rights talk started with the UN Declaration of Human Rights after the uh, Second World War. It just started then for them because that's the first legal document. But the interest theory will push it uh, forward, especially, uh, you know, former White's professor uh, here, uh, James Griffin, uh, in his book on, on human rights, he pushes it back uh, to the Enlightenment, though he doesn't make much of an argument. It's pretty much kind of nods in the footnotes. But at least that's pushing it far, much farther back uh, than uh, the uh, UN Declaration of Human Rights. Uh, he and others uh, set up uh, a justification based on minimal interests that people uh, would have. The problem I find with the interest theory is that it's too subjectively oriented. Many people have this is a common uh, argument against it. Uh, you know, what counts as a minimal interest? Uh, I, I, I remember the wife of Ken Lay, I don't remember her first name, but she. Uh, uh, famously, after you know he ran Enron and ran it into the ground, and uh, he had done a number of illegal actions with shell companies who were supposedly doing things that they weren't doing, so they could charge the state of California ungodly rates, and, and actually brought down one of the governors, a sitting governor at the time, replaced by Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, but uh, but when she uh, when she was talking to people who had lost because they had their retirement plans entirely 100% invested in Enron stock. And, and she said, I understand your pain. You know, these are people now at 70, 80, 85 who have to go back to work because they, they can't live on it or try to move in with their kids. Or it was a very difficult situation. She said, I'm in the same situation you are. She, she was very passionate. We had to sell four of our houses. <laughs> and, and two of the mini jets. And the one that had that beautiful leather bar Oh man, I, I, you don't know how much this it breaks my heart too. I'm just devastated. Now I don't think she was lying. I think she was a truth teller. I, I, I call this uh, uh, goods myopia, where they can't tell the difference between, say, having enough money for food and rent, and then you know having uh, uh, luxury goods. They think they're all on par. We'll get more of that later in the talk. Okay, so what I really do like most about Griffin's account, since I'm taking here as maybe the strongest of the interest-based uh, theorists, is his personhood account. He, he thinks human rights requires a personhood account to make it more understandable, and I agree. Uh, Griffin and I, uh, to my knowledge, are the only ones with personhood accounts. Uh, his is a little more sketchy, but, but it's there, and it establishes uh, the principle, and I think it's an important principle. Uh, what I disagree is he wants to take that subjective part of the interest and attach it to well-being. He thinks it's making it, and there's a whole literature, as you know, on well-being. But can't we're not after, we could have the whole talk on, on well-being, but but we won't. So just uh, in shorthand, I take a basic approach of Tim, Tim Scanlon away, uh, against well-being, and so you know want, want to find out more, read the book, uh, but. Uh, uh, I, I think that that's a big problem with the interest-based uh, uh, approach. Uh, and well, people who use well-being, it really is a more fancy way of just talking about uh, interests. So the third and third of three candidates for uh, justifying human rights is the agency approach. 
So we had the legal approach, uh, the well-being, uh, or the interest theory approach, and now the agency. And we start out with agency uh, with Amartya uh, uh, Sen and Martha Nussbaum and their capability approach. Their capability approach is meant to connect to agency. Uh, and and I, I think this is uh, the, uh, one of the two strong parts of their uh, approach. Um, I like it because it tries to find concrete grounds upon which agency exists. So we have well-being, you know, which is rather amorphous. But they say that capability, there are certain goods involved in capability that will enable capability. And Nussbaum has a whole table of these. And I like the fact that she set out a table of these. The unfortunate thing is that they're all on par. So, so that play, for example, is on her table. I, I think play is a good thing, but it's also on, on the same length as not being murdered. And you know, if someone said you had to be uh, denied a good, uh, I think I'd rather uh, be denied play than life. Uh, I th presumably most of you uh, would be in the same boat. So the, uh, the idea is that there's no hierarchy of the goods. The UN Declaration of Human Rights is in the same thing. All the goods are just set out as like, 13, 14, 15, they're all there, and, 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 and it's actually uh, makes it rather troublesome in implementation because they're all on par. Uh, so, and a, a second, so two more problems. Uh, they emphasize the individual uh, in their personhood account, kind of leave out the community. And this is particularly Sen uh, does this. Uh, they, try to, they try to finesse the individual and kind of uh, an economic approach, which you know, of course, then would would do, and uh, I find this problematic because I think not only do you need the individual account, but you need a community account. Community accounts are lacking in most uh, uh, social political philosophers over the last hundred years. Uh, not with me. Uh, I think they're equally important. And and then the second idea was the the, uh, the levels. So. Uh, there's another, there's another agency account, mine. So uh, uh, I th I'm going to obviously think that this is, has a comparative advantage, right? Or I wouldn't have written the book. Um, so before I set it out, uh, I, I broadly in, in the book try to look at history because we have lots of claims uh, about when we just were talking briefly when human rights begins. I don't even think it began the Enlightenment. I push it all the way back to ancient Greek philosophers in the Western tradition and Confucius in the Eastern tradition. As you probably have heard, some people say, yes, well, we Western, uh, human rights is a Western concept, and, and uh, we're being imperialistic to force the, uh, the Chinese or other uh, people in East Asia to accept uh, human rights, and that's kind of like some sort of cultural imperialism. So I decided to take some time and, and examine this claim, and I don't think it's true. The, and and um, uh, Jeffrey uh, Lloyd, a uh, uh, former professor of classics at uh, Cambridge, uh, agrees with me. And uh, he's also written a book on ancient Greek philosophy and, and, uh, and, and Eastern philosophy. And he comes to the same conclusions I do, that they're very, they're very similar, uh, especially with their ideas of natural law. And if natural law is the cornerstone of natural rights, uh, then as they progress, they, uh, they have many, many parallelisms. The, the big difference is the emphasis on the, when we have community and individual, the, uh, the Eastern tradition keeps the community element uh, to the fore longer, uh, even today, than we do. Many times what we do in, in the West uh, is create what I call egg carton communities. 
Yeah, you you know all, all been to the grocery store and bought an eggs in the carton and they have they're specially placed so that no egg touches any other egg, and and for many people that's their ideal of a community. I live in a community by touch nobody and no one touches me, and 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 we, I get all the advantages and I just sit there all by myself and feeling very uh, self-satisfied. Uh, so. So I think it's actually to our detriment that in our history, unlike in China, that we haven't continued in, uh, the community approach and they kind of fell off uh, in the Enlightenment. And, and so it's, uh, it's not, Enlightenment is not just good for everything, it's, it has some bad uh, as well. So there's two brief uh, history chapters about those, uh, those two uh, perspectives. And it's not just taken with philosophers. And here's another angle. Um, Julian mentioned that I have a great interest in literature, uh, not just uh, 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 you know uh, reading it, uh, but also writing it. Uh, I've, uh, you know, several uh, my uh, my fourth novel, which you also can buy if you want to, was published on December fifteenth, uh, less than a month away, uh, is uh, uh, indicative of a, of a way what I call fictive narrative philosophy. Uh, you can do philosophy through fiction. Iris Murdoch uh, agreed with me. Uh, and uh, she also, you know, is Oxford figure, but she didn't get a lot of attention in Oxford, and she left Oxford and went to the Royal Academy for a while because they said, you know, you can be a philosopher and art, and, and we like you. Uh, so poor, poor, uh, poor Iris. Uh, it was to Oxford's discredit, no, uh, uh, that they didn't accept uh, uh, to Iris. But uh, but I, I've got four original short stories in here, and meant to pick up uh, cases in my. Uh, hierarchical, unlike Nussbaum, I have a hierarchical set of goods and, and uh, paradigm stories for each of the top levels. Uh, so you can see embodied uh, uh, as a little particular instance. And they're all based on people's actual incidents that I know of uh, from uh, 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 people that these happen to. So they didn't just come out of my mind. Um, but then we also look at the literature of the time because one way of doing history is looking at literature. In the Western tradition, for example, you, you can look at Antigone. You know, Antigone is about uh, human rights. Uh, Antigone and Creon, you know, they have to fight to, uh, to bury or put dirt on, actually, uh, the, the, uh, her brother because it's right, because of natural law. And, and seeing that embodied gives you another sense of natural law in the ancient world that, that you might not otherwise get from just to say a straight philosophical argument from Seneca and the Benefices, for example. I believe there's an example of natural rights in the giving and taking of benefits. The Wanderer and the Seafarer, uh, Anglo-Saxon poems. I, I, I have uh, clear uh, indications of natural law and, and going into the Enlightenment with Paradise Lost. All these are uh, evaluated in a short uh, uh, scope in the book. In China, I examined the Book of Songs, uh, the Diamond Sutra for the medieval tradition, and then uh, Da Siji and Jiu Qingjian, uh, uh, as they discuss in contemporary times, uh, life under Mao Zedong, the, uh, the great helmsman. Uh, so it's my contention that this, uh, 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 we explore popular literature because it gives us a kind of a more holistic view. Just a couple uh, days ago, um, my, uh, my wife and I, sitting right back there, uh, uh, went to see at the uh, Victorian Albert uh, a, a show called Disobedient Objects. 
know, it's, we don't often think of objects being disobedient, but if you're in London, I think it's around for another month or two, uh, you might want to go see it because it's, it's all about the objects of people who are revolting against uh, human rights abuses, uh, how they use objects to help uh, em be emblematic of their cause and, and what they're thinking. And so art is in, in particular is, is used. Uh, if, 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 if they had the technology where you press a button and have the song come out, you know, you could have Joe Hill and other uh, songs that were also parts of disobedient objects where people were using them to, to make their, their point. So, uh, so if you like art, uh, uh, that, that will be uh, something that you like. If you hate art, that, that's a, a, a caveat, so you might want to stay away from it. Uh, or if you're reading it, just skip those parts. Uh, so I, I mentioned that personhood account. My personhood account begins this way. It, I call it the personal worldview imperative. All people must develop a single, comprehensive, and internally coherent worldview that is good and that we strive to act out in our daily lives. Okay, so uh, that's a lot of, of words. Uh, there's four parts to that. The, the uh, first is that it's complete. Uh, formally, uh, what does it mean for a theory to be complete? So in, in uh, uh, logic and the uh, philosophy of science, the idea is that you, uh, you can't bring up a new theorem, say, in logic, that, it, that the, the system can't uh, solve. Uh, it can solve all uh, well-formed formulas that are brought before it. So uh, if not, it would be incomplete. So if you, this is something you want to do in ethics. How would you do that in ethics? Would you uh, uh, bring forth uh, a, a situation where you had a worldview that was complete? And I'm suggesting something uh, rather uh, Kantian, having a goodwill. We all know ideas of rational goodwill, uh, uh, but I'm adding another is the emotional goodwill. Emotional goodwill is not discussed by too many male philosophers, uh, but uh, it, it has at uh, least two or three parts to it. It starts with, uh, it starts, well, uh, uh, starts actually from empathy capacity. I have a, a friend uh, who I went to school with, could never get a job in philosophy which, you know, there's like a 95% unemployment rate in philosophy of PhDs in the United States. So it wasn't, so he decided to go to medical school and he became a psychiatrist and he spent his whole career trying to find ways of teaching empathy because a whole lot of psychological problems occur when people are just like, they, they have, they cannot see the world from someone else's eyes. They only see people like little mirrors. It sounds kind of like the dialectic and the uh, phenomenology by Hegel. You know, you, you're looking at someone and, and they're a little mirror. that You only see how they're instrumental to your will and what you want done. And so that's a, that's a person without the empathy. So once you have the empathy, you step in uh, and you can make an emotional connection with another person. And I call this sympathy and you're making an emotional connection. And it's my contention that if you make an emotional connection with another person, that when that person is in need, you'll care for them. That is, care follows from sympathy. So, so empathy, per se, gets you into the realm of being able to uh, engage in sympathy, but empathy itself is not, is not a moral term. I mean, you could be, you could understand the world from someone else's eyes, say, as a great torturer, and know just how much that to, to uh, break uh, this limb or that limb or hurt them before they'll crack, but not too much. Uh, so, so the empathy is necessary for sympathy, but empathy by itself can also be used for ill purposes. 
Sympathy, I believe, is a moral term, that once you have true emotional connection, you will care for someone and you would not hurt the person. So, uh, and, and that, that, uh, uh, that sympathy has to be level because some people engage in sympathy which is asymmetrical. Oh, I'm sorry for you, uh, types like you, I'll pat you on the head and send you on your way with a pound in your pocket or something. You know, they, they, that's an uneven sympathy. But if you're on a level sympathy and, you, and it leads to care, I call that interaction love. So philosophical love is the emotional uh, goodwill and it, and it ensures completeness. So if you have this kind of rational Kantian goodwill for, uh, and, and this emotional goodwill I'm talking about, the two of those together, I contend, will uh, 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 make your worldview complete. You will never face a situation in which you will not have uh, a response that you uh, can be proud of, that is something that you, you, you think that is a reasonable outcome. Okay, so that's completeness. Coherence. So the easiest coherence most people think of is de deductive coherence, right? You don't want to, in one, uh, uh, politicians don't do very well here, right? That politicians go to one group and they say, I'm going to give you A, and then, and then they go to the next one and they say, no, I'm going to give you A and not them A. And then they go to the third, nobody gets A except you. Uh, and, and that's what politicians do, right? That's rationally incoherent. I don't know if any of you saw the movie The Truman Show. Anybody here see that? A couple of you? Yeah, so good. Uh, and you remember how they had the cameras on them all the time? If, if you had, if, if let's just say in our thought experiment of a possible world that there was a Truman Show thing and everyone could see there was somebody watching us all the time, in, in, in like uh, uh, circumstances, we ought to be doing like outcomes uh, or else we're rationally uh, incoherent. Okay, so that's pretty easy. When I said incoherence, that's probably what you all thought of originally. Uh, here's the, the twist one is inductive incoherence. So inductive incoherence isn't generally thought of too much. And inductive incoherence generally thought of inductive logic through betting, you know, probability logic with betting houses, you know. So you say, uh, is there some sporting event coming up? Uh, I don't remember. Anyone in Britain sporting event? No sporting event? Well, let's pretend there was a, a, a soccer football uh, championship, right? And, and you had Manchester City versus Manchester United. I don't even know if that's possible, but it's, <laughs> those are two teams I, I know the names of. So, uh, and so if I were opening the Boylan Betting House and I gave positive odds for each uh, team, I would go out of business, right? Because I have to give positive odds and I have to give complimentary odds the other side. If I don't give complimentary odds, I lose. And, and, you, and you try to give yourself a little uh, split between the two, guessing, and, that, and that's how you make your money. So if we try to transfer inductive logic into the real world, uh, try, imagine, imagine uh, doing things that had uh, contradictory kind of uh, uh, requirements for action. So say I want to be a mafia hitman, you know? We've, we had an earlier uh, thing about Hitman, so you might think he's a really murderous fellow. Uh, but uh, but so, so say, say I want to be a mafia Hitman. What, what do you need to do to be a good mafia Hitman? You have to be callous. You have to be really focused on doing it. You have to not listen to people. Uh, you have to be ready to uh, uh, do your job and get out. And I also want to be, as you've seen in some of the uh, uh, novels and, and movies and so forth, I want to be a real good father and a family man. Uh, so what do you need to be a good father and family man? Well, you need to be caring, you need to listen, you need to go to the set, you have to stick around and, 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 and be there. All the things that was just the opposite of the mafia hitman. So 
you had to choose between them or you're going to have inductive incoherence. If you try to do both, you're going to fail at both. That's inductive incoherence. So people have to look at what they're doing in their life and they have to say, I'm going in this direction and things that are going to take me uh, away from that, I'm going to have to say, no, I, I, I want to I follow a particular direction of life and that's going to give me inductive coherence. So we have to be deductively and inductively coherent to satisfy the second condition of the personal worldview imperative. Third one's rather short and easy. Connection to a theory of the good. All right. Uh, adopt one of the major moral theories. That's done. The fourth one and last one in the personal worldview imperative is that it can't be utopian. It has to be something you can actually do. Uh, it has to be what I call aspirational. It can be tough, but it has to be aspirational. Ethics uh, and uh, uh, human rights talk can't be utopian. We have to get. Uh, we have to discuss things that can actually happen. So that's that's the personhood theory. Obviously, you see that's a, a, a very uh, very involved a theory of the person, and these are the sorts of people that we want uh, aspire. You know, and all this thing about the ethics of belief. The ethics of belief for me is answered by the personal worldview imperative. So my good uh, friend, late Roderick Chisholm, uh, he was all about the ethics of belief. And uh, uh, this, is, this would be my sort of uh, answer to that. Not only that, but there's a uh, shared community worldview imperative and various other uh, communities, uh, not just the community you, you live in, which ha and these have criteria like this. Uh, they are, uh, they, you have to participate. You can't just sit and be a free rider in your community and a user. You have to uh, do. Uh, you have to be involved. Your community has to be diverse, and if it's not, you have to try to make it diverse. The uh, diversity is something you should strive for in your community. Many people look for homogeneity, right? The kinship theory and philosophy of biology—they're always talking about, oh, we just want people to look like us in the mirror, and the more they look like us, the more we want them. There's our genes in the next generation, all that crap. Uh, so the uh, the the idea here is you want diversity because. Uh, lots of different people are going to help uh, solutions come uh, uh, out and, and you'll do, do much better. That Fields Prize, you remember in mathematics, the Fields Prize, they don't even give it every year. And uh, two prizes ago, there's a fellow who put out on the, you know, the, uh, uh, I don't know if it was uh, internet or, or personal uh, emails uh, to 100 mathematicians and, and said, we're going to work on this, this problem uh, and we're going to work on it together and whoever solves it, we all solved it. Nobody gets credit. We all get credit together. And they did it. They did it in six months and it's been around for like 400 years. So it's, you know, it's, it's uh, and they were looking at it from different perspectives and, and they kept sharing their information with each other and interacting with what, and they, no one was out just for themselves. So this aspect of community, this diversity, I think is very important. Uh, respect for people in the community. So though there's diversity, a lot of times people are marginalized. Uh, and, and no egg carton communities. So uh, th that's the basic structure of the community worldview imperative. And then we have not only communities we live in, but extended communities like our country, uh, extended to the world, even extended to nature. So various types of communities that we live in, we have relationships and we have to honor those relationships. And we can't just pretend that they don't exist, that we kind of live as a solitary knight on some sort of uh, a horse going out all by ourselves. In the American elections of 2012, uh, Mitt Romney, you know, he said, uh, he mocked the uh, candidate, President Obama, by, who said, nobody makes it by themselves, we all need help. And Mitt says, no, I did it all by myself. 
I paid my dad back all uh, $100 million he lent me. <laughs> so I'm not owing him. And he, he lectured people at Howard University, which is an all-black all uh, university in Washington, D.C. Uh, he said, you know, if you're having any problems starting a business, just ask for a loan from your dad. I did. And, and, I, and I became, you know, uh, almost billionaire. Most people think he is a billionaire, but uh, anyway, that's a tax question. Uh, so, uh, community account. We have to stop there for the moment. Now, how does this, this gets us to uh, uh, the hard uh, analytic part of, of the talk. Um, what, are, what are we? Uh, living on Earth, we are, according to me, uh, people that, that uh, express our humanity by uh, wanting to commit purposive action for something we believe to be good. So I believe it would be good for me to show you this by lifting up my pen. There, I did it. So that was purpose of action, right? If I'd gone, then I'd be kind of frustrated, and I'd say, make some sort of joke at myself. And, and, uh, but, but we want to commit purpose of action towards what we believe to be good. We, uh, that's, that's my idea of human nature. So uh, the first premise of my argument is all people by nature desire to be good. That's somewhat uh, controversial. Uh, uh, Klaus Steigliger had a little, a little uh, event, a one-day event uh, uh, for me on this uh, a few years ago uh, because uh, he deeply believed me to be wrong and, 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 and he had uh, people just discussing that premise. So it is controversial. I understand that it's controversial. Uh, he's at Bochum. Uh, in order to be uh, good, one must be able to act. So all people by nature desire to act. We are actors. People value what is natural to them. People value what they wish to protect. So we get to our first inference. Uh, all people wish to protect their ability to act. Okay, now, fundamental interpersonal oughts are expressed via our highest value systems, morality, aesthetics, and religion. All people must agree upon pain of logical contradiction, and that would violate one of the parts of the personal worldview imperative, obviously, that what is natural and desirable to them individually is natural and desirable to everyone collectively and individually. Therefore, second inference, everyone must seek personal protection for her own ability to act via morality, aesthetics, and religion. Second, uh, third uh, inference, everyone must, upon pain of logical contradiction, admit that all other humans will seek personal protection of his or her ability to act via morality, aesthetics, and religion. Okay, now we have two controversial uh, premises, so faire attention. All people must agree upon pain of logical contradiction that since the attribution of the basic goods of agency are predicated generally, that is at the species level, that is inconsistent to assert idiosyncratic preference. So uh, when you're asserting, uh, Richard Brandt, a number of years ago, University of Michigan philosopher, had a, a kind of a claims right that, that came from somebody just expressing it themselves. Michael expresses his desire to pick up his pen. All right? And that's a problem. And, and a lot of people found problems in that. So it's very important here that, that, that it comes from the species level. I recognize I'm a homo sapien. I recognize homo sapiens' desire to act to act towards what they believe to be good. 
And therefore, I only possess it because I recognize, uh, intellectually, factually recognize, I'm a homo sapien, and therefore it, it applies to me. It doesn't apply to me in virtue of me being me individually. So it's, that's, that's different than Brandt. Uh, goods that are claimed through generic predication apply equally to each agent and everyone has a stake in their protection. That's a, log a logical rule of subsumption. Rights and duties are correlative, as per Hofeld. Therefore, big conclusion, everyone has uh, at least a moral right to the basic goods of agency and all others in the society have a duty to provide those goods to all. So this is a cosmo uh, cosmopolitan principle involving positive duties to people everywhere, subject only to practicability, remember the fourth part of the personal worldview imperative, that ought implies can. So what, so what are these goods of agency? They're really uh, like the divided line here, right? We have two, one big main division. Uh, so we have the uh, basic and secondary goods. Two sorts of basic goods, three sorts of uh, secondary goods. And the first level of the basic goods are biologically uh, uh, oriented. Uh, food, uh, you know, 500, uh, 700,000 calories uh, is a, uh, United Nations uh, has determined people need for the very minimal action. Uh, there's a little variance for somatypes. Some people need a, a little less, but, but that variance is only about 5%. If you went a long time with less than 500 calories, you, you wouldn't be thinking, uh, and you wouldn't be able to commit purpose of action. It all goes back to purpose of action. That's how they fit in these categories. Water. You, know, you need uh, one to two liters of water a day, and then again, that it, more as you get to the equator, less as you get to the northern climes. Uh, clothing and shelter, because you need to have a certain core body temperature. If that core body temperature uh, is, uh, gets too low, you can't act. Your mind starts uh, uh, becoming uh, uh, numb, and, and uh, you, your ability to think is impaired. Protection from unwanted bodily harm. Uh, this is something that actually a lot of uh, psychological research on because of the terrible job that had happened with the uh, returning Iraqi and Afghanistan troops uh, with their multiple deployments because there was no draft in America anymore. Uh, high portion of PTSD and, and that's because there's protection from unwanted bodily harm. But there are many poor people in the world who hit that just where they live. They, they know if they go out past a certain time of the night, they increase uh, their chance of being uh, mugged or uh, raped or physically assaulted in some way. And knowing and living in that fear uh, uh, harms their ability to act. And so, and so protection from unwanted bodily harm can, again, all these things in this first level can be scientifically examined and, and modified to you know, how, much, how much protection do you need uh, and, and what level and, and so forth. So the idea is, at the very least, because of the uh, argument I just read you, the moral status of basic goods, and we're talking about the, the level one basic goods of agency, everybody on earth deserves these. Now, whether we can provide uh, you know, 700 to 1,000 calories of food for everyone, you know, some people think that's a practical question. I don't know. Uh, I just read a re report just before we came over uh, uh, that said that 40% uh, of all the food that's produced in America is never eaten. Uh, it's, e it's either thrown away before it gets to the table or people just can't eat enough of it and they throw it out and it's, and it's wasted. Gee, if they could more efficiently use the food that's already there, 
there be far less uh, uh, starving people. Oddly enough, there are people who don't want people to use their food. Ronald Reagan famously to Mitch Schneider, a homeless advocate in the 1980s, he classified the, Was uh, the Washington uh, White House garbage. So it, it couldn't be used. He was trying to get it. They were throwing it out anyway. This is better food than they can possibly get uh, from the, the, the rejects at the grocery store. Let us have this food. We'll give it to the homeless. And for some reason, he didn't want to do it. He classified it. His power as president. He could make whatever it classified. He classified his garbage. Okay, so the next level of basic goods is uh, very uh, is deeply embedded. I'll give you a summary. It's uh, their educational goods. Uh, there are liberty goods like the uh, uh, you know freedom of speech, religion, assembly, that sort of thing. Uh, the, uh, the assurance that those you interact with are not lying to promote their own interests, that sort of good. Um, these are uh, basic, but they're at the level two basic. They're not as important as having that food, that core body temperature, and so forth, but they are very important. That's why they're a basic good as opposed to a secondary good. Uh, secondary good level one, basic societal respect. There are uh, groups of people that they have no basic societal respect. Uh, I mentioned earlier that the, uh, you know, the, the gay, lesbian, uh, bisexual, transsexual community in the United States and most of the world does not get a lot of respect. In fact, in, in some parts of the world, they're killed. Many parts of the world, they're beaten up. And in the, where, I, where I teach, my college is in the state of Virginia. In the state of Virginia, you can be fired if your boss suspects that you are gay. That's all he has to say. Does he have to have any proof? He said, you look like, and he has some sort of expletive word, uh, and, and I can therefore uh, fire you. And, and about half the states in the United States are like that. And, and much of the world it's like that. So it's not just the, the, uh, the United States. So uh, it is important to have basic societal uh, respect and equal opportunity to compete for the prudential goods of society. Much of the women's movement in the world over the past uh, 40, 50 years has been trying to uh, get an opportunity to compete for various jobs that were male only. Ability to pursue a life plan of your choice according to the personal worldview imperative. So if you had a life plan to say be a terrorist, that wouldn't follow because that would uh, uh, violate the personal worldview imperative. So you can't do anything. There is a limitation on your liberty, but the limitation is only that it's consistent with the personal worldview imperative. And the ability to per participate equally as an agent in the shared community worldview imperative. So you want to be a member of that community. You want to be able to to, to be a, an active member of the community. So again, we see the personal uh, approach and the community blended. These are secondary goods. What are some of the public policies that sometimes have come from this around the world? Well, let's take the Dalit population in India, for example. Uh, as you know, they are uh, not a caste. They are uh, not the non-caste, non-touchable uh, people. They, uh, theoretically, they don't exist. But if you're Hindu, you don't feel so bad about that uh, in a sense because you believe in transmigration of souls and, and the only reason you're a Dalit in this life is because you're really bad in the last life. And so uh, there's no uh, sympathy for you. And in fact, you have people that actively work for them like Mother Teresa of Calcutta used to do. Uh, she was uh, threatened, you know, and say, here you're helping people who are criminals in their last life. Uh, uh, we're going to threaten you and try to hurt you. Uh, but she persisted uh, uh, on until the end. So. Um, the, the idea then is how do you help them? Well, one way is affirmative action programs. And affirmative action programs are t ways of trying to encourage people who um, uh, might be shut out 
because of, uh, of distinctions that seem to be in place to help uh, one side only. Let me, let's go back to medicine. I say all these things because Julian's here, and uh, as a former doctor, he appreciates medical examples. Uh, so in, 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 in medicine in the United States and in orthopedic surgery, in order to get into the, the uh, most residency programs around 2000, you had to also get, uh, you had to get the endorsement of, the, they had a kind of a fraternity of orthopedic surgeons. And the fraternity of orthopedic surgeons were almost 100% male and, and almost 100% European descent. And that was one of the requirements to get into residency. And so they say, hey, if you're an African-American, Pacific Islander, or woman, you can't complain. You just couldn't, you, you failed in this one uh, part of the requirements. You didn't get this uh, 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 letter from the, uh, you weren't nominated by somebody from our uh, fraternity. So uh, you can't be an orthopedic surgeon. Orthopedic surgeons, you know, the second highest paid uh, 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 subspecialty in the United States. Well, so what, what, did I, what did Michael Boylan, who was working on this uh, uh, ethics manual, do? He said, that wasn't fair. So I wrote a, a little article about it and sent it to the American Medical Association. And it was one of the fastest rejection letters they ever came uh, up with. They rejected it in, in less than 24 hours. Uh, that's really quick. And, and they sent me two paragraph uh, thing. Basically, the gist of it was, there may have been discrimination in the past against African Americans in the United States, and we regret that, but that's way behind us. Uh, we, are, we are now in an era where there exists no uh, discrimination. Uh, you obviously haven't been talking to orthopedic surgeons lately. Okay, so I, I took this letter and I sent, attached it with the, with the same essay and sent it to the National Medical Association. And you say, what's the National Medical Association? I never heard of it. Well, that's an association of African-American doctors because they weren't allowed into the American Medical Association and they still exist. And, and if they were completely integrated, uh, that, that they would cease to exist. Well, I got one of the fastest acceptance letters I've ever had. And, and they requested and I agreed to let them print uh, the American Medical Association uh, uh, rejection as the first footnote uh, to the, and boy, did I get a lot of friends all of a sudden. Uh, so uh, uh, it's 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 you know it's amazing that that you know you're trying to find ways structural ways uh, to and uh, to change this. And by the way, three years later, they dropped that requirement around the United States. That requirement was dropped, and a lot of people from the National Medical Association they were the ones who did all the the field work to to have that happen. And that was one step. It, it still didn't do everything, but it was one small step. Uh, another small step was creating fifth-year programs so that uh, African-American residents could go five years to medical school, do an extra year, and become more qualified, get more papers published, and, and have more uh, uh, time uh, on rounds and, and, and so forth. So they, they make them higher qualified than the people going to four years of regular American medical, medical school. So these were two programs that were designed to help people uh, show what they could do and, and not be uh, uh, pushed away from their plan, life plan of being an uh, uh, orthopedic surgeon. Okay, so the last two, those first three levels, level one, two, basic goods, level one, secondary goods, I believe that those are uh, uh, ones that the governments uh, of the world internally and around the world, uh, cosmopolitan-wise, should adopt. 
The next two, I think uh, the government can stay out of. Uh, but they, I put them down because you're thinking, the idea is, what do you need to commit action? Purpose of action uh, towards what you think is good. They, they've shown a number of sociological uh, studies that people really like to be with their cohorts. If you, if you imagine yourself as being in a cohort, you like to be economically and professionally uh, in that cohort. And, and so the secondary, uh, second level secondary good says you want to be able to utilize one's real and portable property in the manage, uh, manner you choose, ability to gain from and exploit the consequence of your labor regardless of the starting point, and uh, have the basic goods that, you know, today, you know, I have arguments about this with my wife, but uh, uh, she thinks that today in the United States, if you don't have a smartphone, you're, you're, you know, you're, uh, you, you just, that's, a, that's a thought to be a, a necessary good. Uh, you know, that's kind of low down there, right? It's not, certainly nothing like water or liberty or ability to get a, a job and be accepted. But, but a lot of people think you need a, a smartphone. At one time, it was a telephone. Uh, landline telephone. I, uh, when I have students, you know, uh, uh, younger students, I, I like to joke. I say, how many of you ever know what a telephone is? You know, it has a, a line connected with it. It goes into the wall and it rings when somebody's calling you and, and you either press buttons or turn a dial that goes like this. Well, you know, these, so these can change. They, they can change what you need. Uh, it, it's, it's, uh, but whatever it is at that particular time, you, and, and some of them are, are, are marginal. How about owning an automobile? In the United States, I ask students, you know, do you think you need an automobile? And if you live in a city, that seems ridiculous. But if, say you live in the middle of Texas, uh, you know, automobile might be different, a sort of good, or at least access to one. So uh, that, that's your second level, is pretty much keeping up with the Joneses idea. And the last level of, of action is some people really want to exceed in their material goods. They really want to say, you know, the, there's the haves and the have yachts. And they say they really want to uh, be able to exceed their, their people and, and say, look at me. Uh, I am Ozymandias, king of kings, and, 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 and so forth. And uh, look on, uh, ye men of mighty. And uh, the, uh, sure. So long as you know, your good doesn't uh, violate a, a more primitive good, more embedded good. The idea on the table of embeddedness and the reason you create a hierarchy is that everybody at the level one basic goods must be satisfied first. And, and if that means taxing you so you can't buy a yacht, then you can't buy a yacht. Because it's more important for them to have food, clothing, protection from unwanted bodily harm. That includes basic health care because unwanted bodily harm can be bacteria and viruses too. And that's more important. It's more proximate to action than having a yacht. So, so you can have your yacht so long as everybody's eating. Uh, you can have your yacht so long as we have people, the girls in, in Pakistan can have education and they don't get shot in the head. Uh, you know, those things cost money and we have to, to take in order. As soon as one's done, then we go to the next and we go to the next. And, and when, when they're all set right to you, that is after level one secondary goods, then buy your yacht. If you still have money, you can do it. Nothing wrong with wanting to buy your yacht. Nothing at all. It's just that, that if it conflicts with someone else, their rights claim, their human right to food is more important than your human right to a yacht. And that's why we have a hierarchy, because we want to be able to have public policy. You can have a public policy debate and say, what goods are we talking about? Uh, and, and where they fit? Who wins? 
the, the more deeply embedded always wins. So it gives you a blueprint and, uh, of how to actually apply a theory. So many uh, moral theories in philosophy, you say, that's interesting, but you don't know what the heck you would do if you were sitting on the floor of, of parliament uh, and, and uh, voting on a bill. This tells you, because all you have to do is identify the goods involved, and you always go for the more embedded over the less embedded to action. Okay, so we began here with a kind of a litany. Remember, if you can remember back at the beginning of the talk, uh, uh, of various rights abuses. I said it was a very bad year of rights in 2014. Uh, the first step towards lessening these evils requires clear thinking about what human rights are. It's really important to say, are they conventional or are they natural? See, that's, that's, that's a fundamental question. You see, if they're conventional, you only get the rights when your governing body says you do. I, 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 most audiences like to think of it this way. Take uh, women's right to vote. When did women have a right to vote? In the United States, uh, my mother was born, my, she's dead now, but she, she was born in 1917. When she was born, women could not vote in the United States. Now the, and, and they got the right to vote in 1920. So uh, did she have a right to vote when she was born? And was it just being denied to her by her country uh, in an evil way? The natural rights people like me say yes. She always had that right and it wasn't recognized by the state. The state was wrong. If you're conventional, you say you only get the right, you only have a right when your legal governing body says you do. So in 1920, you had the right to vote. That's when you have the human right. Once it's recognized, they call it operational theory of human rights and it's connected to the legal human rights. So you think to yourself, uh, and that's a, a really good watershed sort of question between the two theories. Do, did, uh, did women always have the right to vote? Did they have the right to vote in 1700? Did they have the right to vote in 1800? Was it just because the, uh, the country was wrong? Uh, or did they only get it when it was recognized? Uh, did uh, did African-Americans have a, a right not to be slaves uh, uh, until the Civil War in the United States and Emancipation Proclamation? Uh, and the 13th Amendment and 14th Amendments of the United States Constitution, is that when they had the right not to be slaves and to be free people? Or were they always have that right and, and, and an evil system uh, was suppressing them and, and hurting them? The natural uh, human rights people say it was they always had the right to be free and, and it was an evil uh, United States of America that was uh, uh, suppressing that. So you can see what, what, what it's a big difference if your natural human rights are conventional. And the, the, as I say, the majority, I, in my opinion, people I've talked to and so forth, in and out of uh, academia, seem to be uh, conventional. So I have a big uphill battle. Uh, I have to sound like I'm you know, uh, beating, beating the drums. Um, so I, I, it seems to me that, uh, that we'll have more effective and clearer negotiation uh, for uh, for human rights around the world if we take the natural route. And I, I really think that uh, uh, it's the only way that we're going to have our, our best uh, ch shot at uh, changing the future that I mentioned at the beginning of the talk and, and seems to repeat itself year after year. Uh, our, our, our best hope is uh, natural human rights. Thanks. <laughs>